Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Ottoman dynasty was founded at the end of the 13th century. An Asian dynasty ruled by Muslims, the Ottoman Empire was, by the mid-15th century, a multilingual, multiracial, multi-religious and multi-ethnic empire that stretched into Europe, Africa and Asia. What we have largely forgotten, though, is that the Ottoman Empire was an integral part of European culture and territory, and therefore is an integral part of European history. And rightfully including the Ottomans in our history changes our understanding of what being European means. In today's podcast, we consider just one century of the history of the Ottoman Empire. From the conquest of Constantinople in 1453 by Mehmed II, through to the death of Suleiman the Magnificent in 1566. And we reposition the Ottomans at the heart of the diplomatic, political, economic and cultural world of Europe. Guiding me through is Professor Mark David Baer, Professor of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science and a prize-winning author whose new book looks at 600 years of Ottoman history and is simply called The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars and Caliphs. So it is lovely to talk to you about this fabulous new book. I'm very excited to have a chance to discuss in some detail some of the aspects of it. And I'd like to pick up the story a little bit earlier than we normally do on Not Just the Tudors in the 1450s, because it feels like if we're going to talk about the Ottomans and the Renaissance period, we need to talk about the conquest of Constantinople and what it meant for international politics. What would you say it did mean? It meant so much for so many different groups. So for the Ottomans, it meant that the Ottomans were able to accomplish what no previous Islamic empire had ever achieved, which is to say to conquer the greatest city of Christendom and to convert the greatest cathedral in Christendom to a glorious Friday mosque. The Prophet Muhammad had sent armies against Byzantium already in the 7th century. And before the conquest... The Ottomans believed that they had discovered the tomb of one of those fighters, one of those men sent to take the city way back in the 7th century. So this was taken as an omen, as a propitious omen that the city would fall. And that neighborhood and that tomb, that discovered, rediscovered, imagined, invented tomb of that person became the most holy site in Istanbul. So the Ottomans, they have no real legitimacy 
In other words, the Ottomans can't claim that they descend from the Prophet Muhammad, as other dynasties can. They cannot claim that they descend from Genghis Khan, as other competitors do. Their only right to power is the fact that they're in power. And they say that they're promoting justice in the world. So conquering this city gives them more esteem. So for the Ottomans, it has immense significance. Now for the rest of Europe, we have to think about the significance there and how it was imagined, how it really was. So we have different groups of the Habsburgs, for example, and humanist scholars from the Byzantine Empire. And these groups will then present this fall this conquest as a rupture between East and West, as a cataclysmic ending of a great Christian city, as even maybe it will launch messianic visions that the end times are come because the city has fallen. And some of these Christians will want to launch crusades. So there is that aspect as well, the propaganda that's promoted after the fall by Greek scholars, by the Habsburgs, trying to promote a crusade to retake the city. So these are two aspects of the conquest that are important. And the man who's doing this is Mehmed II, who is an interesting character, at times seems pretty horrendous. What should we make of him, do you think? I was asked in a recent interview who my favourite sultan is, and it's a silly question, but it's actually quite a good one. It made me think, and it's Mehmed II, Mehmed the Conqueror, because I imagine him not only as a military genius, but also as a 21-year-old with a chip on his shoulder. You know, imagine decades ago when you and I were in our 20s and you're out to prove something to the world. His father had put him on the throne when he was a teenager, but then removed him two years later because there was an important war to wage and because the army wasn't following him. So imagine being placed on the throne of one of the most important dynasties in the world. And then a couple of years later, your father says, oh, you're not man enough to do it. So I always imagine Mehmed as having this chip on his shoulder as someone who wanted to prove himself. So then when he's put back in power, I think taking Constantinople for him is of incredible importance. I think of him as a human being. And when we read the Ottoman chronicles, both Greek language and also Ottoman language chronicles of the conquest, they don't present him as, let's say, the regime in Turkey today presents him. They don't present him as someone who's without feelings, compassion. So normally in medieval times, following a conquest, the soldiers rape and pillage and plunder for three days. So Mehmed allowed his troops one day of this bloodshed after the city fell. But then after one day, he called an end to it. And he rides into the city, apparently on a white horse, and he sees the devastation. He sees the disaster. He sees the ruined buildings. And he's actually quite melancholy. He goes along and you can imagine him saying, my, what have we done to this once great city? And he rides all the way to Hagia Sophia, so the Church of Divine Wisdom, the grandest building, the grandest church in the world. And he goes into the building. He's not triumphant. He's awed. He's amazed that other people so long ago could create such a building with such beautiful frescoes and mosaics. He doesn't order them all covered. And for three centuries, Muslims will pray beneath the strange faces of angels in that building. He goes into the building and he has his chronicler record a couplet from a Persian poem that laments the fact that kings come and go, kingdoms rise and fall, and the fate of all of us is death. 
you know, even at the age of 21, he wants himself to be depicted sometimes as the new Alexander, but also as a human being with compassion and with maturity and with melancholy at this moment of great triumph. Yes, that's extraordinary ability to have humility in the face of such triumph is certainly a real character marker. And of course, he matches, I don't know whether you think he matches, but he certainly embarks on his own architectural project in Constantinople in terms of building a palace on a hill, which seems to be a manifestation of the Ottomans' complex heritage. Can you describe that palace to us? Well, he starts out in the middle of the peninsula and he builds a complex upon the ruins of the church where the Byzantine emperors had buried their dead. And he builds his palace and his palace is for his concubines and his children and him as well. So he's repeopling the city. He's building a new market, but he doesn't like this part of the city. And so, as you mentioned, at the tip of the peninsula, he orders the construction of what comes to be known as the New Palace. It's called Topkapa Palace, Canongate Palace. And that is going to be a place where, as you say, he's going to combine all of the heritages that the Ottomans inherit. So the Byzantine inheritance, the Turco-Mongol inheritance, and of course the Islamic. So in the first courtyard of the palace is going to include the church Aya Irini, so it's no longer going to be allowed to be a functioning church, but it's left intact. And that's going to be in the first court of the palace that's open to all subjects of him. Right outside of the walls of the palace is, of course, Hagia Sophia. So this church becomes the Friday mosque. This will become the place where Mehmet and future sultans will go for their communal Friday prayer. These are Islamic elements. He also then will build the palace as a series of low buildings, as a series of courtyards, and as you enter, each gate is limited to fewer and fewer people. So the palace is set up in a hierarchical way so that by the time you get to the third and fourth courtyard, that is only for the most important people in the empire. So what he does is he builds the new palace, Topkapa Palace, is an all-male palace. It's only for men. So in his harem, he builds a... Harem just means the private quarters. That's all it means. The family quarters or the private quarters of a Muslim man. So in his private quarters, he has his palace pages. These are young boys who are being trained to be the leading administrators of empire. So it's him and the palace pages and his guards and his eunuchs and his ministers who are able to access that. He leaves his concubines and his wives and his children at the old palace in the center of Istanbul. So there's something Islamic about this. There's also something uniquely Ottoman about what he's doing there. The palace also has some of these earliest still standing buildings have an architectural touch, which is clearly Central Asian Mongol. He also allows for space within the palace grounds for the favorite Mongol game of polo. It's combining these different elements. There's also a Byzantine element, not only with Christianity, but also with all the trappings of imperial power that Mehmed is adopting. The Ottomans began as a group of semi-nomadic Turkic warriors, and that was about 150 years before the conquest. By this point, the Sultan is like a Byzantine 
or even a Persian emperor with all the throne and the trappings of power. And would it be fair to say that from this point on, starting with Mehmed II, but also some of those who follow him, there is a kind of ambition to expand that imperial status, to be crowned not just, you know, an equivalent of a Byzantine emperor or a Persian emperor, but also the Holy Roman Empire. Yes, and he goes ahead and he's the first Ottoman ruler to call himself Caesar. On one of the gates of the palace, he inscribes the phrase that he is the ruler of two continents and two seas. So this tells us a bit about his more universal interests. It's rumored that at his funeral, they actually made a wax effigy of him that went along with the funeral procession, exactly like Roman emperors. And he's rebuilding the city, and he's keeping in mind its ancient antecedents. He also liked his chroniclers to sometimes compare him to Alexander, the ancient ruler. So he's definitely claiming that the Ottomans are the new Romans. And again, as I write in the book, they're not the new Romans only because they occupy Roman territory. Now they've conquered the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, the city of Constantinople. But it's not just because they took the land. It's not just because they conquered it, but it's because of Mehmed's vision. And if you go to the Victorian Albert Museum, I always take my students there. I take them to the Renaissance rooms. I don't tell them why. It's always a surprise. I say, today, after our Ottoman seminar, I'm going to take you to the V&A to the Renaissance rooms. And they say, okay. So we go there, and in the third room, there's a portrait of Mehmet the Conqueror. And there, on the portrait, in gold, are three crowns. So the artist, an Italian Bellini, of course, the famous portrait artist, has added three crowns. Now, Muslim kings didn't usually wear gold crowns, and we don't think that Mehmed the Conqueror wore a crown. He wore a turban. But on this painting, there are three crowns, and these three crowns refer to Asia and Europe. So basically, he presents himself, and other Europeans believe that the Ottomans are in the process of uniting East and West. And he does launch an invasion of Italy near the end of his reign. His forces land at Otranto, I think it's on the heel of the boot, and his forces there are there for a year. It seems that he wanted to take Rome. He wasn't able to. But this was a man with very large visions. And his military success, it is followed up, of course, not by his successor, Bayezid II, if that's how it's pronounced, who's known for his piety and for being deposed, but by his son, <laughs> Selim I, who seems to have been an extraordinary war leader. And I suppose maybe there's something to be said there about how he succeeds against the Persians and the Mamluks and what it is that's sort of driving Ottoman victory on the battlefield. Well, you're right to mention Bayezid II. Bayezid II would have that portrait of Bellini sold in the market. So Mehmed II collected all kinds of Western European items. And as I mentioned, he had his portrait made and so on. Bayezid II had wanted nothing to do with this. Maybe this is why that we have the portrait in London today. We also have these medallions that were struck by Italian artisans. Typical Renaissance medallions showing his head, his profile, but also on reverse, which they don't show at the V&A, and I think I know why, there are nude males. So when we think of Mehmed as a Renaissance figure, again, he's a great military leader. He's a young man with a chip on his shoulder, but he's also a Renaissance man. He also 
from his own poetry. He writes poetry dedicated to young Christian boys. And there's no reason to hide this. He wrote under a pen name, as all Ottoman sultans did. But this is how he expressed his desire. This story has been completely silenced because he's presented today as simply a military genius, which he was. But his whole persona, a man who, as a typical Renaissance prince, also at a certain phase in his life, pursued his desire for beardless youth. This is also something we have to think about. But his descendant, Bayezid II, was different. But as you mentioned, Selim I, then, is the one who is able to improve the foundations that Mehmed built upon, improve the navy, improve the military, and take over what is today the Middle East. So you ask the question, why were they so successful? And there are a couple things in hindsight we could look to. One would be this levy of young boys that they leveled on their conquered territory. So every year, it would seem from Ottoman sources that one in 40 Christian boy from predominantly Christian regions would be taken as a levy, taken to the imperial capital, circumcised, converted to Islam, trained in the Islamic languages, and then based on these boys' innate abilities, either would be trained to join the administration, because they were clever, or if they were quite strong and swift, they would be trained to become the elite infantry unit known as the Janissaries. So this was a policy which, if we look at it from the dynasty's point of view, was a way to create a new class of administrators, of bureaucrats, and soldiers who would be completely loyal to the sultan because they'd be taken away from their natal region, they'd lose their religion, lose their language, and so on, and they would have everything to prove to the sultan alone, who would reward them with all the rewards, all the treasures of one of the most wealthy and powerful empires at the time. And this worked. For several centuries, the Ottomans were able to create a loyal, strong military with a Janissary at its heart. Now, the Ottomans were also very innovative. They used firearms very early, and they were able to defeat enemies, whether they are Christian powers or Muslim powers, that either, in the Christian case, in the rest of Europe, had less sophisticated weapons, or in the case of the Mamluks in Egypt or the Safavids in Iran, whose soldiers refused to use gunpowder weapons. So this is how they were able to defeat the Mamluks. Part of it was weapons technology. So this is one thing we can point to as a reason for their success. And another one might be their practice of succession. So in this country, we had the War of the Roses, which were quite bloody and awful. The Ottoman equivalent was something like that, but it was established by law. So when the sultan passed away, his sons would compete to be the next sultan. And they would literally battle each other. They would fight it out with their own armies. And the victor would then put to death all surviving males who could challenge him. So Mehmed II put to death an infant brother, for example, because he didn't want anybody to grow up to oppose him. So this fratricide, as policy and practice from the 14th century into the 16th century, was another reason why the Ottomans were able to produce strong and resolute leaders without any internal enemies. Now, this would change. Rebellions would begin in the late 16th and 17th century. But for the first three centuries, these cruel policies worked. 
Yes, I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it sounds obviously horrific from the outside, but you're absolutely right that it would avoid a problem like that in England of Henry VI, a weak ruler who produces war because of his character. So you don't have that problem, at least. We have, though, and I'm moving relatively quickly through the chronology because there's so much I want to talk about in terms of the themes, and you've already touched on the Renaissance, but... Selim dies quite suddenly, 1520, and his son, Solomon, becomes ruler also at a young age, 25 years old. This is the man who will become known as the Magnificent. Could you introduce us to him? Selim died suddenly. It might have been plague. It might have been another disease. But he was only in power for about eight years. And the Ottomans were absolutely at their height, devastating east and west. So his son, Suleiman is the next ruler. And as you mentioned, he's 25. And he wasn't favored. He wasn't necessarily the one that the Janissaries wanted in power. And in those early years, Suleiman had a hard time getting the military commanders and the ministers to listen to him. Another man who had to prove himself. And so Suleiman also made some strange decisions. He had a childhood friend named Ibrahim. And he appointed Ibrahim to positions that he really should not have had. A lot of tongues were wagging. Why is this person now the head of the military and this vizier, this minister, and so on? So that also alienated people. So I think what Suleiman decided to do, he did a couple of things. One was to present himself, have writers around him present himself in a mystical, messianic, quasi-divine way. And if you look at even as early as 1525, Five years after becoming the Sultan, his writers are speaking of him in religious terms, using terms that had not been used for previous Sultans. So this is one way to wage propaganda, to present an aura of almost divinity. The other thing was then, again, to actually go out and make some impressive conquests. So his grandfather, Mehmed II, had launched a siege of the island of Rhodes and failed. Suleiman conquered it. And this was impressive. He also was able to conquer Belgrade, which is the gateway to Hungary and to Central Europe. So these conquests then got the army behind him and with the religious propaganda then was able to help him create an aura around himself, an aura of invincibility. Suleiman also was the first sultan to call himself caliph. So the caliph is the symbolic religious leader of all Sunni Muslims. So Salim had conquered the Mamluks and the last surviving descendant of the Abbasid caliphs from 8th century Iraq was in Cairo. So Salim, after conquering Cairo, took the caliph back to Istanbul. But he didn't take on the office or the position, but it was his son, Suleiman, who during his reign said, I am the Sultan, I am the Caesar, I am the Khan, this is a Mongol title, and I am also the caliph. The claims and the visions are becoming grander. Suleiman challenges Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Suleiman says, no, I am the rightful Holy Roman Emperor, and I am the one who's going to unite East and West under one religion. It's just that that religion is Islam. Suleiman, and I talk about this in the book, he has a crown made for himself that has three tears to it. And it looks like it's a combination of the Holy Roman Emperor's crown and the papal tiara. And when Suleiman and his armies marched from Istanbul towards Vienna 
1529 for the first great siege of Vienna, which failed, of course. On that march, stopping in places such as Belgrade, Suleiman actually wore this crown, and he had other European ambassadors see him sitting there with this crown, which must have been really incredibly heavy. I mean, in a contemporary Turkish television series we can watch today, they have Suleiman wear the crown, he's moving his head around. No, this was a significant crown. So he called these ambassadors in to see him. So the, the aim was for them to report that he is the new pope. He is the new emperor. He also had these triumphal arches made for his procession through Belgrade. So from Mehmed through Suleiman, these Ottoman sultans are making claims that they are the new Roman emperors. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? You know, when you give that list of titles, Khan, Caesar, emperor, it's just incredible, and the new pope. But as you say, he couldn't take Vienna after you know, besieging in 1529. Do you feel that that was the sort of turning point for Ottoman ambitions in mainland Europe, or do they last longer than that? I think there are two points on the map that were just too far technologically speaking, for the Ottomans to take. So in the east, Tabriz, which is a city in today's Azerbaijan and Iran, it was the capital of the Safavid dynasty in the east. The Ottomans could attack it, but they couldn't hold it. They couldn't remain there. It was too far. On the other end, in the west, the same thing is true with Vienna. It was just too far for the Ottomans to maintain their supply lines. And also... With Vienna, a number of bad decisions were made. Perhaps they launched the campaign too late in the campaign season. They could only campaign through spring and autumn. They couldn't campaign in the winter. Heavy rains and snow, they had to leave their cannons behind. So by the time Suleiman's forces arrived at the walls of Vienna, they didn't have the manpower or the weapons that would be able to sustain a siege. The same thing would happen in 1683 as well. So part of it is the distance. But as for ambition, Suleiman's ambitions grew and grew, and his claims to being a perhaps messianic figure would continue for a couple of decades. So that defeat was certainly more significant for Central Europe than it was for the Ottomans, because the Ottomans went ahead and they would campaign in the West, and then they would campaign in the East. So a few years after... Suleiman conquers Baghdad in the east, so the storied city of Baghdad. So it certainly didn't stop them. The Ottomans in the 16th century were sending arms to Moriscos. These are Muslims converted to Catholicism in Spain. They're arming them so they can rebel against the Habsburgs. They're arming forces in Indonesia. They're present in the Indian Ocean. They have the plan, not realized, that they'll build a Suez Canal so that they could move quicker into the Indian Ocean. They have plans to build a canal linking the Don and the Volga rivers in southern Russia. So in the 16th century, the Ottoman worldwide vision will climb and climb no matter what happened in Vienna. And I think that's so important what you've just said, because it feels that this story is such an important corrective, sort of recentering it, I suppose, in our view of the balance of power in Europe in this time in terms of trade and diplomacy and warfare and all sorts of things. We have to put the Ottomans back into the story, don't we? We do, and it's also about culture. I often go to Hampton Court Palace with my family. It's really well done how you could go and you can imagine perhaps what life was like there under Henry VIII. And you go into one hallway and there are several portraits. There's the leader of France, there's Charles V, 
and there's Henry VIII. Where's Suleiman? We know that Henry VIII had a portrait of Suleiman. Why don't the curators at Hampton Court Palace put that on the wall as well? So Henry VIII was fascinated and impressed and admired the Ottomans. If we look at Tudor court dress, we look at their styles, their fashions, Henry VIII would dress as a sultan for fun. He would wear a turban and have a robe. Also in that same hallway today at Hampton Court Palace, facing these portraits, is a full-length portrait of a woman who is dressed in Persian dress, right? So this is part of our culture in this country here. And it escapes textbooks here. It escapes when curators are putting exhibit together on Henry VIII. All of the exhibits are about Henry VIII and perhaps Spain, and perhaps France, and England. But there's no conception that he was part of a Europe. And then that Europe extends from London to Constantinople. It's not just the West. I think probably if you compare... Henry VIII to Suleiman the Magnificent, he just ends up looking so tiny that it's probably hard for the curators of his palace to do that, perhaps. I don't know. But I would say this is absolutely true in terms of thinking about perceptions, both how the Ottomans were depicted by 16th century Western culture and rulers, and that's really interesting, and also how the Ottoman rulers perceived other European powers. How did they see each other? Well, if someone like Suleiman, again, I mentioned he sees himself as the rightful inheritor of the Romans. And so when letters are exchanged east and west, he'll list all of his titles and it goes on for a page. You know, he's the ruler of this kingdom and that kingdom. And then he'll address it to the king of France, who he'll say the leader of the province of France. That's it. Three words. So certainly, Suleiman I was somewhat of a megalomaniac. You can say that. And we see it in these letters. Or if we look at the letters exchanged, again, between the Ottomans and Queen Elizabeth, the ruler there will say, Murat III is a page long about all the kingdoms he owns and rules, and then Queen Elizabeth, the whatever, the Christian ruler of England, right? So you see this sort of thing. I think Queen Elizabeth was, like her father, quite astounded and impressed by the Ottomans. One of the things that really surprised her was the fact that she corresponded with the women of the harem through a Jewish mediator. In the 16th century, there were Ottoman Jewish women who had that role of being the ones who communicated between the harem and the outside world. So what did this mean for Elizabeth, ruling a kingdom that expelled Jews three centuries earlier from her kingdom, and now she's in conversation and trade relations with a kingdom that not only allows Jews to flourish, but also she's speaking to a Jew and she is going to exchange gifts with the mother of the sultan or the wife of the sultan or what have you through this woman. And they have these intimate letters exchanged in Italian in which what will bring them together is the fact that they're both women and they enjoy certain textiles and certain perfumes. So we see a very different side of Elizabeth. Elizabeth had her physician was a converso, so a Jew who was converted to Catholicism, but he was executed as part of an alleged plot. He was accused of conspiring to murder the queen. So this was a situation in England, and also we know that it must have been quite a surprise to see African people at the Ottoman court. So the Ottomans had two staffs of eunuchs, one was European and one was African. And so this was something that the English and other Europeans always comment upon. It must have really made them think about their more homogenous kingdoms and their perhaps 
being less powerful, less wealthy than this one state, this empire, which was able to, in those centuries, integrate all these diverse peoples, and that diversity helped them expand and succeed. Yes, it really is a notable feature of the 16th century Ottoman Empire, by contrast to the Christian West, that it is according this welcome and this religious freedom to Jews, for example, it makes it markedly different from everything that's happening over the course of the 16th century in, say, Italy or Spain. <laughs> Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. The time the weapons were tested, there was this a perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. I'm breathless, I'm panting, because I'm hiking up the Inca Trail in the footsteps of the intrepid explorer Hiram Bingham. Why? Oh, because Dan Snow's history hit is going to Machu Picchu. Join me in Peru for an epic mini-series unravelling the mysteries of the Inca, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. We trace their meteoric rise to power, their domination of mountain, desert and jungle, their elaborate ritual and practices, including human sacrifices, and their demise at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors. Out now on Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to pick up on a very important point that you mentioned there though as well which is that I think we can easily think of Ottoman women secluded in the harem but you're suggesting here that royal Ottoman women have a much more important role to play in international diplomacy. And this will be even more true in the early 17th century when the sultans who are placed on the throne will be minors Mehmed IV is seven or eight years old. Some will be mad. Ibrahim is considered to be crazy. Others will be as well. So we have the situation where mothers of the sultan will be the regents for their sons. And we have regencies in other parts of Europe. Now, in other parts of Europe, women become the actual empresses, the actual rulers. So Queen Elizabeth, obviously, and there's many other examples. In the Ottoman case, no woman is ever 
the de jure ruler. There's no sultana ever is ruling the empire in her name. But in the early 17th century, we know from Ottoman administrative documents that these mothers of the sultan may be standing behind a curtain. Their young son is in front of the curtain, and the viziers, the ministers, say, well, when should we battle Venice? And from behind the curtain, the mother is saying, you know, let's wait till the spring, or first we have to finish repairing these two castles on the straits. Or a minister says there are complaints about so-and-so, and from behind the curtain, the mother makes sure that her son will place another vizier in office. So from behind the scenes, because they're really de facto ruling in the name of their young or mentally unstable sons, in the early 17th century, up until the mid-17th century, we do see a situation where these mothers of Sultan are immensely powerful, clever, bright women who are making not just decisions about personnel, but also even having to do with matters of war, matters of rebuilding the city, for example, after a devastating fire in the late 17th century. It's the mother of the sultan who's deciding where to build a new royal mosque and actually making a mosque for herself, in a sense. So we see this process in later centuries, after the 16th century. And you've talked about the fact that Mehmed II was or should be seen as a Renaissance prince. Does Suleiman the Magnificent pick up that baton of patronage and supporting artists and pursuing that kind of agenda? Yes, Suleiman also collected a number of items. For example, he had these beautiful tapestries produced in what is today Belgium or what is today the Netherlands, beautiful tapestries, which were figural. So the idea that the Ottomans, because they're Muslims, never allowed their artisans to create human images is completely false. So Suleiman also and his viziers, Ibrahim, his childhood friend, who he elevated to the Grand Vizier, Ibrahim collected statues from conquest in Hungary, for example, and then put these statues of ancient figures, you know, Apollo or what have you, perhaps in his palace garden or in more public places. So these people, Suleiman and his circle, while engaging in radical Islamic thought and speculation about the end times and the messianic age dawning and a final apocalyptic battle, while that was all going on, he also was collecting tapestries, collecting statues, and was very, very much indeed a Renaissance man. I mentioned earlier Mehmed II had written poetry devoted to young boys, young Christian boys in a Christian neighborhood of Constantinople. Suleiman in the book, I argue, had two great loves in his life. One was certainly, and it's well known, his love for his wife, Roxalana, in the West, as she's known. Her name in Turkish was Hurem Sultan. So there's no question that he was devoted to her, and he wrote her very beautiful poetry. And he made her his wife, whereas she began as a concubine. And for a long time, Ottoman sultans had not been marrying they had been having limitless number of concubines instead of one wife, but he actually loved her so much that he elevated her legal status. She was freed. She was no longer a slave. He freed her and married her. So this is the story that is told so often, but he also loved Ibrahim. The two of them had a very special relationship, and that is something that today people hint at. They don't want to talk about that because they forget what Renaissance culture was about in England, Italy, and in the Ottoman Empire. 
Are you saying you think that's why this aspect of the rulership of these sultans, this Renaissance dimension, has been forgotten or maybe even obscured in our versions of history? Well, it's been obscured, really. The sexuality, the desires of medieval men and Renaissance men have been forgotten. Another crucial aspect that we should talk about, which is the age of discovery. So, you know, commonly we might use this phrase to talk about 16th century European maritime nations exploring, colonising, but you are again changing the focus here. You're saying, okay, the Ottomans have naval power, they have worldwide vision, and that actually we should be remembering an Ottoman age of discovery. So how much are they really participating in discovery? How much of a seaborne empire do they command? They have a seaborne empire. We always talk about the Portuguese, who are of course important, and the Portuguese are launching their navy and taking ports and they're moving into India and also the Straits of Hormuz and around the Arabian Peninsula. But what is so often forgotten in the story is that the Portuguese, their main competitor, were the Ottomans. And there were these massive naval battles in the Indian Ocean, around the east coast of Africa, in the Red Sea. And the Ottomans actually were able to conquer all of these port cities in these areas in the 16th century. Part of it was this competition with the Portuguese over the spice trade. And part of it was also because they were the biggest military power in the east as far as that part of the world. Of course, the Chinese were powerful as well. But we forget about this. We tell this story of the Spanish and the Portuguese and the English and the French and the Dutch going west. And people often ask the question, well, if the Ottomans were so great, why didn't they discover America? If they were so technologically advanced, what was wrong with them? Was it Islam that held them back? This is completely the wrong question. The question is, you know, why did Columbus go west? Because he was trying to avoid the Ottoman middleman with trade. And Columbus, by the way, was completely lost. He gets a lot of credit, but he landed up in the Bahamas or what have you. And he calls these people Indians because he thinks he's in India. Columbus believed there was this empire somewhere in the east, this kingdom that was already Christian or wanted to become Christian. And with that empire from the east, they would launch a crusade and retake Jerusalem from the Muslims, at the time controlled by the Mamluks in Egypt. So he had a Christian vision and he had a trade vision. But, you know, we tell that story. We don't talk enough about, well, who were the real military powers? Which were the wealthiest countries at the time? The Ottomans were a land and sea empire controlling these entrepots such as Aleppo and Syria, even as far as Gujarat, they had these merchant colonies. But because there's so much of a triumphal story is always told about the rise of the West, and because there's so many Islamophobic ideas about Muslims, one being that Muslims never engage in trade, and Muslims weren't allowed to trade with people who weren't Muslim. Well, this is completely untrue. The Ottomans had a trading colony in Venice, and the Venetians even allowed for the creation of an inn for Ottomans. And there was even a mosque there. So the Ottomans were traders. Ottoman Muslims were traders. There's this stereotype that Ottoman trade was in the hands of Christians and Jews. Well, that's not true. Ottoman Christians, Jews, and Muslims equally were engaging in trade all the way to India, all the way Western Europe. And the Ottomans would intervene with their traders when they were persecuted. So, for example, the Inquisition would sometimes arrest Ottoman Jewish merchants 
in the Italian city-states. And, and Sudermont would demand their release, saying, these are my subjects, no matter whether they're Jewish or Muslim or Christian. So interesting. I think I'd love to come back and talk to you more about 17th century Ottomans another time. But just very briefly, what is the legacy of these Renaissance Ottoman rulers? It's an important question. And it's a legacy that I'm trying to resurrect because it's not only myself, but there's a number of younger historians of the Ottoman Empire who are trying to place the Ottomans into this story that we tell about global history. Now, the problem is that sometimes in trying to correct the narrative, some scholars have gone the other way and have made exaggerated claims about the Ottomans. All I'm saying is that they too were a naval power. They too had global visions. They were the ones competing with the Portuguese. They were the ones who, well, if we say the Portuguese aimed to take Jerusalem and failed, then we have to remember that, well, the Ottomans aimed to take Jerusalem and succeeded. And that's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to have a triumphalist story about the Ottomans. I'm just trying to place them in the picture and expand the way we look across history in that age. Well, this is certainly something that you're doing. I think you've helped us consider how we tell history, how our present moment makes us think back about history and maybe need to rethink it a little bit. And also just to turn our story of this Renaissance period on its head and actually look at it through the other end of the telescope, as it were, and to look at some other ways of approaching it is to see the sort of place of the Ottomans at the heart of all of this. And we haven't even touched on how important they were in the Protestant Reformation, but if people want to know about that, they're going to have to read your book. So thank you so much for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.